If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72, plus another 9-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. This is Bill Warner of the Amelia Island Concord Delegance, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Every weekend, thousands of people gather at racetracks across the country to watch their heroes compete in cars that can drive 300 kilometers an hour. Stock car race drivers are a special breed of American folk hero. They have always been men, until Janet Guthrie. Before becoming a professional driver, she worked as an aerospace physicist. But Janet is not a newcomer to car racing. For 13 years, she successfully raced sports cars and earned her right to be here. Janet has competed in more than 120 races. Her record is impressive. In 1977, she was the first woman to race in the famous Indianapolis 500. For years, she raced her own Jaguar sports car, towing it through the night to the race, even being her own mechanic able to tear the engine down and put it back together again. Essential to winning is a fast, smoothly functioning pit crew. Refueling, tire changing, engine adjustment, windshield cleaning, all in less than 45 seconds. finish this race in Dover, Delaware will mean 500 times around the track, a distance of 800 kilometers. All afternoon, without a rest and only hurried pit stops, the drivers and cars go full throttle. Just one careless moment, and for that driver, the race is over. Because of stringent safety requirements, serious injuries are rare in stock car racing. Welcome, and yes, you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we got a great show for you tonight. I have a very special guest this evening. I have the first lady to ever get behind the wheel of an Indy car and compete at the Indy 500. And since this weekend is the Indy 500, I thought it would be very fitting. So anyway, Bill, guess what? You're a big race fan, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then last week, we did a special tribute show to Carol Shelby. But as Mother Nature would have it, unfortunately, we had a bunch of lightning and thunder. So uh, what happened, it knocked the computers out. So I couldn't exactly get all the interviews edited in time. So I ended up playing the show, and uh, we just played what we had and I had to cut them short so nevertheless we did it as best we could but I wanted to thank the guys at SAC that would be Rick Kopech and Bob Shaw as well as Glenn Park Ned Scudder uh, J.L. Henderson Chuck Cantwell and uh, Phil Remington for taking the time on a short notice to uh, do the, the quick interviews with me now you can go to the podcast once I get these things edited you can go to the podcast and you can you can hear the whole show so it's a pretty good show I put it together because it's uh, a nice tribute show to uh, by some of the people that used to work with Carol Shelby and members of the Shelby American Club. So anyway, hey, you got that first song queued up there? Yes, let's hear it. Let's roll the turntable. (laughs) 
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for takeout order at 727-501-9090 that's 727-501-9090 they truly have the best smoking barbecue in town oh and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce that's the rib shack barbecue in downtown largo 727-501-9090 i'm telling robert from nostalgic radio and car sent you Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Wayne Carini from Chasing Classic Cars, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Back to you. Hey, you mean I'm live? Okay. <laughs> I, I can't read. Your, I can't read your numbers here. You can't read my numbers. Is that a backwards nine? It's a forwards nine. That's a forward. I've never seen a nine written like that before. We'll have to take a picture of this and put this on your website so people can see how you write a nine. <laughs> I can't help it. Hey, when I was a kid, I used to live in Europe, and I, I was educated over there, so I write like a European sometimes. This is, this is America, by the way. I know it is. At the land of the free and home of the brave and Memorial Weekend is this weekend, everybody. So I want you guys to salute your soldiers and be thankful for what we have here, our freedom in America. It's a great thing. It's the greatest country on the planet. Anyway, hey, what do we got going on? Oh, of course, like I said, we got the Indy 500 this weekend. We've got the Grand Prix of Monaco. And, of course, next month, the uh, towards the end of the month, I think it's the third week in June, is the 24 hour of Le Mans. So, at any rate, but uh, like I said, the most important thing this weekend is remember Memorial Day. So, let's go to that next commercial. And I want to, I'm excited. I want to have our guest on here really quickly because she's a fascinating individual. And Sounds I, like it. I had the opportunity to meet her last year at Amelia Island and they did a very special seminar on, uh, on women in racing. And Lynn St. James was there. Janet Guthrie was there, of course. Denise McCluggage was there. And my friend Judy Stropis. She, by the way, used to work for the Roger Penske. And then there's a girl in Florida that we've been uh, keeping our eye on. And this young, very attractive, very talented, up-and-coming driver. And uh, her name is Shay Holbrook. We're going to have her on maybe in a, in a month or two once she gets a few more races under her belt for the season. Because the season just started here, I think, uh, a couple, three, four months ago. So well, midway through the season, we're going to get her on and we're going to get, again, a woman's perspective on racing. Okay, It's not just a man's sport. It shouldn't be. I mean, there are some things that I don't think women should do. For example, I'm not sure I want them on the front line next to me. Now, you were in the service. You were in the military. Right, Bill? That's right. And your guest is ready. And okay. Now, this, uh, this song that we have. Yes. Is, is that a man and a woman from the movie? It is from a movie. And it was a movie back in 1966. And it was called A Man and a Woman. And it's about a race car driver. It's kind of a love story. I mean, I saw the movie when it first came out back in the 60s. But the theme song is what we're going to be playing tonight. I never, never saw it. You never saw it? Okay, but this is a good movie. But the, the big thing I liked about it, and the reason I went to see it initially, being a kid, is because he drove primarily Fords in there, and I'm a big Ford guy, so he drove Mustangs, he raced a Rally Mustang, and he also drove a GT40, and he drove a Lotus Ford open-wheel car in there. So it's kind of a cool movie. You have to be in the cars to kind of understand the movie. I, you know, I didn't really pay any attention to the rest of the 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 what was going on in the movie. That didn't interest me at, at all. Just the car stuff did. Anyway, go ahead and roll that uh, clip, and then uh, let's get our guests on the air.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Indianapolis 500 saw history being made with the first 200 mile per hour lap, the first four-time winner, and now the first woman wins her starting place in the field. Janet Guthrie pushed her car to 188.403, and Tony Holman has a new problem. What do you say in place of gentlemen, start your engines? All right, we're live, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Now, let me tell you about this lady. Okay, she's the first woman, truly, to race at Indy. Also, the first woman to race at the Daytona 500. She's the author of her own book, Life at Full Throttle, and I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Janet Guthrie. Janet, are you there? Oh, Robert, I am so glad to be talking with you. How are you this evening? Oh, just fine. So, anyway, I prepared the show for you. I hope you enjoyed uh, the theme song to uh, A Man and a Woman. And that oh, was... that was such a nostalgia trip. That was uh, that was a great movie. I thought it portrayed the mentality of, of a racing driver better than practically any movie I've ever seen. Did you, uh, did you see the movie when it first came out back in 66? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, yes, I was in my third year of racing my Jaguar XK140, and I saw that movie when it first came out, and uh, yeah, it really hit me. Okay, well, tell us a little bit about your background now. You, uh, you kinda, you're from Iowa originally, and then you moved to Miami, because your dad worked for, what, Eastern Airlines, correct? 
Yes, when I was born, he was running the Iowa City Airport, but then he uh, went to work for Eastern, and uh, by the time he retired, he was flying stretch DC-8s. Okay. And is that what kind of uh, got you involved in, uh, or really interested in uh, flying? Well, I'd prefer to to think not. I I think it was just inherent. I I think I was born adventurous and grew up insufficiently socialized. But I did used to beg my father for flying lessons starting when I was, I think, 12 or 13. And uh, so we'd go flying, and I'd do things wrong, and he'd yell at me, and I'd cry. And when I got over it, I'd beg for flying lessons again. But I was very happy when he turned me over to a regular instructor. Now, you were, what, 15 when you started flying by yourself solo, correct? Um, the legal minimum age to solo was 16. Oh, 16, And okay. I did, in fact, solo when I was 16. Okay, so you were kind of like a free-spirited person, like uh, Amelia Earhart, correct? Would that be a fair oh, statement? Well, um, I, I, I think uh, Amelia Earhart and I were, were different people, but uh, yeah, flying was my first love, really. Okay. Well, now, how did you get involved in racing? How did you get? How did your love for cars develop? Um, well, I, I, I flew all through um, after high school. I flew all through college. Um, I I was ferrying airplanes up and down the East Coast when I was 18 years old, uh, from Chicago down to Miami, that kind of thing. Um, I graduated from college, went to work as an engineer in the aerospace industry, and needed a car. And um, with my wonderful new salary of $125 a week, and my usual sense of moderation, I bought an XK120 Jaguar. Uh, that was the big dividing line. A Jaguar? On a, on, wow. Now, that was actually, even in those days, a Jaguar was kind of considered a kind of a high-maintenance car, wasn't it? Well, high maintenance was the least of it, especially since mine was seven years old. Um, I, I, it had um, wire wheels, and I had a knockoff hammer. And every time the fuel pump went, uh, quit going tick tick tick, one had to take the knockoff hammer and lean out and pound on the frame rail underneath until the fuel pump started going tick, tick, tick again. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, high maintenance. <laughs> You're right. Well, now, let me ask you this. Did you eventually, like we use the term, you know, among guys, we say, so you were kind of like a wrench. In other words, you learned to kind of actually work on the cars and do some of the mechanicals on it. Is that kind of what happened? Well, well I, I I had to. The the XK120 was my first car, and, and I did uh, what they now call solo competition or autocross and and hill climbs and so on, and I discovered sports car racing uh, existed, and I bought an XK140. And since I had no trust fund, I very soon learned to build my own engines. Oh, interesting. Now, the one, the 120 was a fixed head. It was a, a hard top. So was the 140 also a closed car, or was it open? No, the one forty, the the, the one twenty wasn't really suitable for racing because it weighed, if I recall correctly, something like uh, maybe eight hundred pounds more than the Roadster. Um, uh, the XK one forty Roadster that I bought had been prepared for racing with a Westlake head and it had a roll bar in it, and that's the one that I first took to Sports Car Club of America Drivers School for my license in nineteen sixty three. Oh really? Would you teach your which track did you get your license at? Marlboro, Maryland. Oh, you know what? That track's not there anymore. But uh, I've had a number of drivers, a number of guests on the show, and everybody talks about how great that track was. Was it really that good to you as well? I mean, did you enjoy that track? Well, it was it was a short track, mm-hmm. um, an intricate track. Um, it, it was fun. It it wasn't. It wasn't that much different from driving a a solo course. I mean, we went out and walked the track and made notes on the um, uh, corners, the entrances, the apexes, the exits, uh, where there was a dangerous drop-off, all that kind of thing. Um, uh, But I have fond memories of it. Now, what are some of the other tracks that you raced in sports car racing that that you felt were or found very challenging, but, but yet you enjoyed? 
Oh, my very favorite of all time is no longer there also, uh, Bridgehampton, out at the end of Long Island. Very fast, um, very challenging. Uh, there was a long main straight at the end of which there were two downhill uh, corners, uh, sweeping fast corners that you had to set up for before you could even see them. Um, I really loved Bridgehampton. And Watkins Glen, of course, was a great favorite, too. So you raced primarily up and down the eastern seaboard then here at that time? Mostly in the northeast, yes. Lime Rock, Thompson, uh, Bridgehampton, Vineland, New Jersey, um, uh, on up into New Hampshire. And um, on one or two occasions as far south as uh, Florida. Oh, really? How about VRI, Virginia International Raceway? Was uh, That was back then. Well, it actually closed, what, in the late 60s? But in the early 60s, um, you were, did you get a chance to race there? Um, yes. Yes, I did. Okay. Now, you raced in at Sebring in 67 six, and 70 for sure, right? Did you race? So what got you into Sebring? Now, Sebring was far more professional than just regular sports car racing, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, I guess my first big professional race was the Daytona 24-hour of, um, of 1966. That was, uh, that was quite an event. That was uh, on the front page of the sports section of the New York Times. Well, you know, back then, um, uh, sports car racing, road racing, uh, was the top of the line in, in the United States. Um, newspapers maybe covered Indianapolis, but they certainly didn't cover stock car racing. Um, what they covered was um, uh, SCCA and the international races at Sebring and Daytona. So I was part of that back then. Um, I, it was um, it was a sort of an oddball affair in '66. We had this uh, little rat of a Sunbeam Alpine, uh, one of the uh, slowest cars in the field. So you had to drive looking backwards as much as looking forwards in order to keep out of the way of the of the fast stuff. But we did that successfully, and I was so thrilled to be there. How many drivers did you uh, team up with? Because a 24-hour race is usually between three and four different drivers, correct? If I recall correctly, there were three. Um, it seems to me it was uh, Susie Dietrich and Donna Mae Mims, and um, uh, I think that was it. Okay, now uh, Mims, now she's a, a very well-known driver, and she was one of the first ladies in uh, sports car racing, right? Well, no, there'd been women in sports car racing since uh, since the beginning. I always heard about um, Evelyn Mull, uh, although I never met her. She was out of it before I began. And, of course, uh, Denise McCluggage, who right. came out of retirement to drive one of the, uh, uh, one of the Sebring races that, uh, that I was in in her beautiful yellow Ferrari. All right. Now, when you how do how how did the whole thing come about with the Daytona thing? I mean, what was kind of like your uh, your um, introduction to that particular racetrack and that particular race? Well, I was still working at Republic Aviation out Long Island, and I'd been racing my Jaguar for um, three years and um, or two and a half, I suppose, at that point. And I, uh, I got home from work one night to find a, uh, a telegram. Uh, stuck under my door saying, uh, please call me with respect to a possible ride at the Daytona 24-hour. Well, the <laughs> top of my head nearly came off. Um, and um, I, it turned out that I was scheduled to be um, a, a relief driver, which um, I, only if one of the uh, drivers who had been hired ahead of me, all of whom had more years of experience, um, needed relief would I get into the car. And that happened uh, in the middle of the night uh, for, oh, gee, some 12 hours. I had been in the pits every time uh, the car came in for fuel, hoping I would be able to get into the car. And finally I did around 3 in the morning, and I, I believe I drove for two tankfuls of fuel, just loving every minute of it, and, uh, and then got out again. Now, in 66, you're talking about fast cars. I mean, there probably were some 
fast Ferraris, some fast Porsches, and probably some extremely fast Ford GT40s. What was it like at night? Now, did you get did you get much time to practice on that track? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so you got in the track 3 a.m. in the morning, cold turkey, with one of the slowest cars on the track. What were the weather conditions like? Because sometimes it rains at Daytona. Uh, the weather was uh, the weather was okay. Um, I had spent um, a, a lot of time walking around the infield, looking at all the turns, uh, seeing how cars went through them. I, I think I must have had at least one lap uh, at some point or other. Uh, I, I believe that was a requirement, but uh, nothing to speak of. And um, I, oh yeah, it was uh, it was uh, definitely something to keep you on your toes. Um, uh, making sure you stayed out of the way of the fast stuff. Uh, more difficult in the infield than on the high banks of the oval. Yeah, I was going to say, because in the high banks, it's really, really easy for a slower car to hold the line. But when you get on the infield, you've got, uh, you know, you got the hairpin there in the infield, and then you got the S's and the chicane in the back, and then coming back on the turn two there. Um Oh wow. yeah, you had to place yourself really carefully in order not to uh, not to hold up the fast ones. If I remember correctly, um, I, uh, Ken Miles and Lloyd Ruby won that one, and um, uh, more than a decade later, uh, the first time I qualified at Indianapolis, I found myself sitting next to Lloyd Ruby uh, uh, on the dais at the victory banquet. Uh huh. What type of an individual was he? Oh, Lloyd, he was super. He was so laid back. He was such a fast driver, but when you talk to him off the track, uh, he was just calm and uh, lovely, lovely guy. In sports car racing, um, who were some of the drivers that you enjoyed? Now, in sports car racing, they were more receptive to women, correct? Oh, yeah. In all the 13 years that I ran sports cars, I could count the issues uh, due to being a woman on the fingers of one hand or less. Uh, yeah, there'd always been women in sports car racing, and it just wasn't a big deal. Would you say that uh, the sports car racers were maybe a little bit more gentlemanly-like as opposed to, let's say, NASCAR or IndyCar? Well, back then, we're talking the 60s mm-hmm. now, um, if, you were, um, if you were a college graduate, you did not drive IndyCars or or um, uh, uh, stock cars. You, you went into Sports Car Club of America. And that, for example, is what um, Mark Donahue did, the 1972 winner. He came out of sports cars. Uh, Sam Posey, Peter Revson, a number of guys that I could name that um, in the um, uh, late 60s started, um, started heading over to Indianapolis. So, yeah, I knew a lot of those guys. Now, who were some of the guys that you, uh, when you were racing, you know, there's always a driver that you like to kind of go wheel to wheel with, door handle to door handle with. You know, you always, if you're not the fastest and you're certainly not the slowest, there's always a driver. And I, I know this from my own experiences that I like to kind of race with a little bit. Who were some of the guys that you like to race with that were, you know, in the same same league, so to speak, in terms of caliber of car, caliber of driving, and uh, and talent. Oh boy! Now you're really causing me to reach back. Um, okay, I, let me let me narrow it down for you. Sebring, because that was one of your favorite races. Okay, because Sebring, you won your class. You were driving. Let's see, you were telling me you're driving a, uh, a a Healy, right? A little Healy Sprite prototype or something. Yeah, it was called a, a Donald Healy Sprite prototype. It was a coupe, um, space frame, didn't look anything like the old bug eye that uh, you and some of your listeners remember. It was it was a car especially built for for this kind of racing, uh, 1098 cc's, a really um, small engine car, but, uh, but we did win the under two liter prototype class with it um, in 1970. Um, which was the year that Mario Andretti took over a Ferrari that was two laps down at the 11th hour and um, and won the race overall. And I was uh, driving in those last hours and uh, certainly had a close-up view of what 
Mario was doing. I uh, and at the in the middle of the night with hay bales scattered all over the place, Mario was turning laps in that Ferrari faster than what it had qualified at in the daytime. I really have have never seen such driving. Wow. Now that, that of course that track's an interesting track anyway but in that particular race i think Stephen queen and revson were leading for a, a number of laps because they and they were driving an old vintage like a three four year old race car that 908 porsche and uh the the 917 cars were out of the race at that point and like you said mario andretti came in but at that particular track who were some of the drivers that you were competing against in your class there besides mario i mean obviously mario was you know he was in the top class um well those races um uh, did attract uh, the top drivers i mentioned uh, miles and ruby at um at daytona um certainly andretti at, at sebring um i i i was I was not driving the big cars, you know. I, I, I all I had was an engineering salary. Mm-hmm. I'd been building my own engines, putting all my every penny I had and into um, into race cars. Uh, so I, I, I never had a chance at at one of the faster cars, except once, which is a story too long to tell. Uh, but some of the drivers I most admired, um, certainly uh, uh, Mark Donahue. Mark was not only a really, really fast driver and a, a super nice guy, um, he was clean. He and and um, when he was driving Trans Am in in the sixties, he'd go out onto uh, mid Ohio against Parnelli Jones, and uh, uh, Parnelli would come in with. Um, his car all scraped up and having pushed six competitors into the boondocks and and um, Mark Donahue would come in without a mark on his car not a scrape anywhere and Mark would win and that was my idea of how things should be done um, what about Dan Gurney because Dan Gurney was another one that was a very fluid driver and I'm sure he was on the track at the same time you were as well right actually in that race too in 1970 well, we we overlapped very very little um, at Bridgehampton one time. Um, the uh, Sports Car Club of America cars were uh, running as um, a curtain raiser to the uh, to the Can Am, and um, I, I I believe I won my class if I remember right. In any event, I'll never forget um, receiving my trophy from. Dan Gurney's hand, so that was a major thrill. He's a he's a real nice guy. I see him every once in a while at Amelia Island. Um, let's go to the the good stuff now. Let's move up to fast forward to 1977. Your your big break in IndyCar. Tell us how that all came about. Well, um, I, I one day um, in um, at the end of 1975, I, I got a phone call. Uh, my answering machine caught it because I was out at the a place where I kept my uh, my car, working on it, uh, getting ready for the next race, uh, from a guy I had never heard of saying, how would you like to take a shot at the Indianapolis 500? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, right, another one of these charlatans. Uh, but the next morning I called Chris Economaki, um, and I said to him, who is Rala Volstead? And Chris filled me in. Uh, Rolla Volstead was a longtime team owner, one of the last of the shoestring owners, but he had never failed to put his cars into the field for the Indianapolis 500. So by the time it was uh, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, uh, Rolla was from Oregon. Um, I, I, I called him back. We had a conversation. Um, and what it, what it was was uh, since there were no women on the ovals at that time, neither in stockers nor indie cars nor any of the other ovals, uh, Rolla kept asking his uh, sports car racing friends, and the name he he kept getting was mine. He had always been an innovator. He brought the first uh, American-built car with uh, a winged Indianapolis uh, first American-built rear-engine car. Um, and somewhere along the line, he got the idea he'd like to be the first team owner to be, bring a woman driver to Indianapolis. And the name he kept getting was mine, so he called me up, and it went on from there. 
Now, what was that like? I mean, you you obviously had from 70 to 77, you were still racing sports cars, correct? Uh, through the end of... Um through the end of 75, yes. Okay, so then that, therefore you were still kind of in the loop a little bit and that's how he was able to contact you. What was it like to go to Indy for the first time and see the car, be there, experience it, test it, and then ultimately get on the track? Well, the, uh, uh, when I talked with Rala, my condition was that we have a private test first. Um, and if he liked me and I liked him and the car went fast enough and I could make the car go fast enough, uh, then he could make whatever noise about it uh, that he felt like he needed to. And uh, so we did that at Ontario Motor Speedway, and the test was successful. So I did have the benefit of um, a couple of days of running around Ontario, which was uh, out in California and similar to Indianapolis, uh, um, before then, and then the first IndyCar race I actually drove was at Trenton, New Jersey, which also no longer exists, and that was successful. And so I did get to Indianapolis with a little bit under my belt, but I do remember sitting in the car waiting to go out for, for the first time, saying to myself, remember, it's just like Trenton, only bigger, and myself <laughs> said back, what are you kidding? This is Indianapolis. It's the holy grail of, of Indy cars, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, let me ask you a question. Had you had prior experience in an open wheel car before the testing at Ontario? No, only once. I drove a, uh, a Formula V and a, um, um, a curtain razor at the Sebring 12 hour one year. Uh, so I knew enough to, to know that a, a rear engine open wheel car was was a different kettle of fish, but I had a very, very strong desire, and that was what it took. Would you say that uh, you had a fairly decent, natural talent to drive cars, as well as a desire, strong desire, right? I felt like that was what I was born to do. Okay. Now... At Indy, the the day of the the testing, you qualified. I think it was like one hundred and eighty some odd miles an hour, and you were kind of like right about in the middle of of, of the the quali- qualifying speed. Correct. Well, we've made a a jump here. The first year I was at Indianapolis, that car of Rallas, uh Tom Bigelow, the all time sprint car um, uh, winner, uh, uh, most wins of any sprint car driver, had not been able to make it go fast enough in seventy five to make the field. And uh, no more could I in 76. But the last day of, of qualifying, A.J. Foyt let me take his backup car out and practice. And obviously I made that fa- go fast enough to make the field, but A.J. decided not to let me make a, a qualifying attempt with it. So um, um, I drove a, a couple more IndyCar races in, in 76. Um, but the first time I put a car in the field was actually 1977. And I did set fastest time on opening day of the track um, and was still in the top 10 when I hit the wall on, I think it was, um, I think it was Tuesday. Uh, and we had the devil of a time getting the car back uh, into running condition again. It was a prototype. No parts were available. They had to be fabricated and so on and so forth. But uh, the bottom line was that I did put it securely in the field on the last day. And yes, my starting position was uh, somewhere in the middle of the field, 15th if I remember right. So what was the outcome of that race and what was it like? I mean, what was it like at the very start, you know, when they did say, matter of fact, what did they say? Did they say, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines? Well, you know, uh, that was uh, Tony Holman's prerogative, the the guy who um, saved the track after World War II. And he had said at the Monroe Rookie Banquet that he was going, well, it wasn't he. Um, uh, The guy that ran Monroe Shock Absorbers said that he'd been talking to Tony and Tony had said he was going to go ahead and say, gentlemen, start your engines, because after all, the mechanics started the engines. They had no onboard starters. And um, when the dinner broke up, um, 
Kay Bignati came up to me, George Bignati's wife, the great master mechanic, I, and also the daughter of Louis Meyer, the three-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. And Kay said, we can't let Tony get away with this. Um, she said, I'll start your engine. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, that was how it happened. Um, I, 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 Kay was out there on the starting line, even though a guy in her husband's garage that morning had um, had a, an engine kicked back and hurt his arm bad enough to send him over to the track hospital, and another guy had been had his eyebrows burned when uh, 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 an engine flashed back. Kay was out there on the starting line, and she started my engine. So what Tony said was, sly old fox, in company with the first lady ever to qualify at Indianapolis, gentlemen, start your engines. (laughs) Okay, very good. Okay. So now you're on the track. The race is going, and you're following the, or actually you're following the pace car. What's going through your mind? Um, well, uh, of course, there was a great mix of speeds throughout the field due to the qualifying procedure um, in those days. Every, uh, there were four days of qualifying, and everyone who qualified on the first day started in front of everyone who qualified on the second day and so on. So there were always some fast cars behind you. Um, and, of course, the, the spread in speeds between the front car and the last car was much, much greater in those days before spec car racing. So um, I had walked around uh, with uh, the, uh, the starting field studying the nose aspect of each of the cars so that I would know, and all you had was those quivering little side mirrors, so I would know when someone came up behind me whether it was uh, one of the fast cars that I was obliged to uh, to yield to or whether it was someone that I was closely competitive with and uh, that I wasn't, wasn't going to give an inch to. So what you're thinking about is... Um, Who's, who's in front of you? What mischief might they get into? Uh, who's behind you? Um, who, who has a, a grip on what they're doing? And who's going to um, lose their head at the start of the Indianapolis 500? And what does their nose aspect look like? I see. Okay. Now that race, you had, uh, unfortunately, you had engine failure in 77, but you came back again in 78, right? With your own team and, and a different car, and Texaco was your sponsor, correct? Yes, that was a, a real last minute thing. I, I got the promise of the money from Texaco uh, one month before the start of practice, and it was uh, a, a bit of a scramble uh, to get the whole thing assembled. But uh, luckily, I had had a full year, uh, not not a full year, but uh, 19 out of 33 races in NASCAR, uh, what they then called Winston Cup racing, NASCAR Cup racing, now called Sprint Cup. Um, and um, I had a great crew in um, NASCAR Cup racing, and they had said to me, uh, and I just loved it, uh, they said, if you get something together for Indianapolis, you're not going to forget about us, are you? So uh, my uh, Sprint Cup guys came up to crew the car. Uh, my uh, NASCAR crew chief was uh, one of my two main men at Indianapolis. The other one was um, a guy who had um, uh, more experience with IndyCars, and um Anyway, it, it came together, it, uh, it went well. Um, the best I figured I could do with that car, which was a, a taller car built for road racing circuits, um, a Wildcat built by George Bignati, I figured if everything went right, I might finish fifth. Well, we did have a few problems, but I finished ninth. A top ten, you you know, I'll take it. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, now let's jump over to NASCAR. You were the first lady that ever raced at the Daytona 500, and that was after Indy, correct? 
Um, well, um, uh, again, uh, we have to go back to uh, 1976. Okay. When, uh, uh, when it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to put uh, Rolla Volstead's car in the field there, and in fact nobody could have, um, and after um, the last day, A.J. let me take his car out and practice, but then decided not to let me make a qualifying attempt, um, there had been this offer to come down to the NASCAR Cup race at Charlotte, the 600-mile race on Memorial Day, and uh, attempt to put a car in the field there. And uh, uh, so I went there and did that. So that was, um, and um, this this coming Sunday will be the 35th anniversary of that race. I missed out on the uh, first two or three days of practice. Uh, I had seven laps on the car when when I made my qualifying attempt with it, and I qualified right behind Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Bill Elliott, who were just uh, a fraction of a second faster than I was. I ended up uh, finishing, let me see, 15th, I think. Now, did that race impact you as much as the IndyCar race did? I mean, did you feel the same sensation, the same gratification, or was it two different, uh, Was it? did you have a different feeling? Well, it was different, of course, but I was so happy to have qualified well and, and finished well for a rookie uh, who had never even seen a stock car race at that point uh, at, at Charlotte. Uh, it was uh, it was quite uh, quite an adventure. Back then, of course, uh, Indianapolis was often referred to as the only race, and things have changed. But um, NASCAR racing, even in uh, 1976, was pretty big time. Now, did you of the two styles of racing? Had if you look back in retrospect, which one would have you probably rather pursued if you had the choice of one or the other, or uh, does or or both? That would have been a, a really really tough choice because of the extreme prominence of of IndyCar racing back then. Uh, but for pure flat out enjoyment, I really loved the NASCAR Cup racing. Uh, I mean, to come up on a, a marginally slower car and and run right up in its draft and, and then pop out at the last minute with the extra speed you had gained and uh, and go on around at the, the famous slingshot pass, uh, that was such fun. I really loved NASCAR racing. <laughs> Sounds like it. Now, let me ask you this. When you did, when you raced in NASCAR, did, how many road courses? Because I think back in those days, you only raced Riverside, the Glen, um, and, and I think that's all they had back in those days, right? Because I think when Riverside closed, they went to Sonoma. So did you um, get did you chance uh, to The only one I had a, a, a chance at was Riverside, but uh, uh, right before the... Um, Oh, let me see. Uh, you're causing me to reach way <laughs> back here. 77, 78. The only road circuit I ever had a chance at um, in NASCAR Cup was uh, Riverside in the 78. And, and I had um, actually um, fractured my um, right wrist two days before the 1978 Indianapolis 500. And while that um, uh, was not a, a, a uh, particular hindrance um, at Indianapolis, um, I knew that I couldn't drive a, a stalker on a road circuit where you had to shift uh, with a fractured wrist. So I had to give up Riverside. I regret that. There's a quote here from Gordon Johncock, and it says, She has done a hell of a job. The woman drove 500 miles with a broken wrist. I don't know if I could have done that. Now, that's a hell of a quote. I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that's, that's putting a huge feather in your hat, wouldn't you say? Well, that's, uh, that's very... That shows some endurance. To, to hear. Um, I, I was, in fact, uh, quite concerned uh, about it because the uh, the gear shift on an IndyCar um, 
had no gates. It just sort of flopped about, and the location of each gear changed any time you uh, disassembled the back end of the car to uh, change an engine or something like that. Um, but um, as it as it turned out, under the uh, pressure of necessity, uh, my left hand learned where those gates were, and um, uh, so it uh, and and my right hand didn't have any difficulty holding on to the steering wheel. It was just that my my wrist wouldn't flop. I gotcha. Uh, so I would reach over with my left hand to to shift gears, and it um, it really wasn't a, a serious problem. Okay, now we got a minute or two left, but uh, why don't you plug your book? Because you wrote a book here that's called Life at Full Throttle, and tell uh, our listeners about your website and uh, how they can find out more information about you. Oh, well, yes, thank you. I do have a website. It's just JanetGuthrie.com, or if you Google me, um, the website is the one that comes up first. Um, Amazon.com is out of the book at the moment, but it appears that BarnesandNoble.com uh, does seem to have some copies, or you can find out on my website uh, how to order one from me directly. Okay. And uh, what in closing, what would you like to say? I mean, I know you you still follow racing, and you follow primarily women in racing, right? And you're kind of involved with that a little bit, because I think you're on the lecture circuit, too, and you, you give speeches. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, yeah, now and then I do have a speech coming up at the end of June, and I do try to follow uh, what the women are doing. Congratulations to Catherine Legg for overcoming uh, dreadful circumstances uh, for the upcoming Indy 500. Uh, Simona de Silvestro is laboring under the terrible handicap of a of a Lotus engine. Anna Beatrice uh, driving for M- Andretti. I've really got high hopes for. So I'll be looking for all of them this. Uh, this coming Sunday. Okay. Well, I want to thank my guest this evening, Jen Guthrie, the first lady ever to race in uh, IndyCar. Uh, one more quote real quick from Buddy Baker. She's good. Janet, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We'll be in touch. Thanks for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. We'll see you next week.